Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And we are very pleased to be able to present to you author Colin Wilson's talk at the first ever Jack the Ripper conference that took place in Ipswich the 12th through the 14th of April, 1996. This 22-year-old audience recording was rescued from a secondhand bookshop by Mark Ripper, and we are grateful to Mark for saving this piece of Ripperology history and sharing it with all of you. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Stuart Evans and Ipswich in 1996, introducing Colin Wilson. We're all going to, to listen to a living, well, I consider a living legend in the, in the genre, Colin Wilson, the author of many books, um, somebody whose work I read when I was a youngster and have looked up to for many years, and uh, I think he's an inspiration to a lot of people. Colin's going to give us a talk on a subject that's, uh, I won't say very close to it, it might be the wrong phrase, but uh, <laughs> a subject that he's written very much about, and uh, I think we'll all be familiar with his work, and he's had a, a very long interest in the river as we've seen. So, would you like to welcome Colin Wilson? Peter Curtin, as you probably know, 
was um, born sort of about 1890. Uh, extremely poor family in Cologne, uh, Kjell Mulheim. And uh, his uh, father was in prison quite a lot for incest with his sisters. And I think Kjell sort of had his incestuous relations with his sisters. But he also um, got to know a, a sadistic dog catcher who lived in the same building. And uh, the sadistic dog catcher taught him how to masturbate the dog. And said, you know, once you've masturbated the dog, it's going to never leave you. It's permanently enthusiastic about you. And uh, the the dog catcher enjoyed being cruel to the dog. And Kirsten picked up his taste from him. Now, the interesting thing, as you can see, is that um, Kirsten was living in a sort of very steamy sexual atmosphere. And as you know, basically, serial murder is about sex. Um, they're pretty well all um, sex murders. I mean, there's a small number of exceptions in my book, A Plague of Murder, to people like Beverly Allen. Uh, in fact, you know, as far as I can see, no serial killer so far has been a genuine female serial killer. Um, Lee Warnos, for example, obviously killed for money. Uh, anyway, I wrote this thing, Ritual in the Dark, and uh, I had three central characters in Ritual in the Dark. was the hero, and he was what I called an outsider. A term I borrowed from Bernard Shaw, who said that he in those days was a complete outsider. He said I was outside politics, outside religion, outside society, and so on. It seemed to me that this idea of outsider was very interesting. Uh, somebody who feels himself alienated from society around him feels, in a sense, that you know he has something important to do or say, but that somehow the society he lives in prevents him from doing this. And obviously, I very much felt in this position myself because I've been born into a working-class family in Leicester. And my dad was in the boot and shoe industry and worked for about three quid a week throughout the 1930s and went into the army during the war. Um, I left school when I was 16. Obviously, I would have liked to go to university, but at that time, I was born in 1931, um, you just didn't really get the opportunity. And uh, what happened, in fact, was that I uh, went back to school as a lab assistant when I was 16. But in the meantime, in the few months between leaving the school and going back, I've been so utterly miserable in the job they gave me. I got a job in a wool warehouse that involved wearing wool when it came into the factory in Hank, and then re-weighing when he went out of the factory while not to bobbing. And uh, it was incredibly boring and incredibly hard work. And it was from 8 o'clock in the morning until 6 in the evening and Saturday morning. And uh, I hated it, obviously. I had this feeling that I was stuck on a phone and treadmill, and I'd never get off it. That I was going to be like this for the rest of my life. And you know, I can see that I was very intelligent and it seemed pretty stupid that someone like myself should be in this position of not being able to do the kind of thing he wanted to do. And so I spent all of my time reading poetry. I get back from work feeling very tired, very self-pitying. Start off by reading the most miserable poetry I could find. Um, Edgar Allan Poe's For Annie, and uh, in which he talks to her from a coffin and says, thank heavens that crisis, the danger is past, and the fever called living is over. And so on. And yes, that is land. And gradually, as I read on, I would get more and more cheerful. And I did by reading quite sort of happy things. And uh, I'm feeling absolutely marvelous. And that struck me as extremely interesting. Through the exercise of the imagination, you would get yourself out of a totally miserable situation, and suddenly um, would feel strong enough for anything as it were. But what bothered me was that every time this happened, and I got into this feeling uh, that, of tremendous euphoria, uh, then the next day would start and the whole thing would start over again, as if what fate was doing was draining your energy and causing you to replenish yourself by sheer excellence and making you start again from the beginning. And uh, I actually decided one day I'd commit suicide. I thought, you know, God is obviously playing some kind of stupid game with me. The only way to get my own back is to kill myself, to refuse to go on. And uh, by this time I was working as a lab assistant. And uh, I wrote in my diary at great length about this feeling that I had that life was absolutely meaningless and pointless. And then when I went off to night school, um, to the um, analytical chemistry class, I decided I'd kill myself by taking potassium cyanide, and, uh, which, you know, only takes a few seconds to kill you. I went into the room a bit late, and the group were gathered around the professor at the desk in the center. I went over to the reagent shelf, 
took down the bottle of cyanide off the shelf, and as I was uncorking it, suddenly had an incredibly clear vision of myself. A couple of seconds in the future with an awful pain in the pit of my stomach. And suddenly, something very peculiar happened. I turned into two people. It was as if I was standing beside myself, and here was this little bloody idiot called Colin Wilson, sort of drowning in self-pity <coughs> about killing himself. And the trouble was that if he killed himself, he'd kill me too. And I objected strongly to this. And quite suddenly, they were being stupid. I just called up the bottle and thought, absolutely superb. And went back to the desk, and for days afterwards, had this odd sense of walking on air and of being strong enough for anything. So it did strike me that being pushed to extremes, as these people I called outsiders were, did somehow reveal to you what life was all about. And that because most people live inside, so to speak, they may experience these extremes and therefore can live from the beginning to the end of their lives, never questioning who they are or what, what they're here for. And so I began to write this book, The Outsider, while I was writing Ritual in the Dark. The Ritual in the Dark had a hero who is basically a kind of intellectual outsider, a bit like Nietzsche. And there was another character in the book who was really based on Van Gogh, who was a painter. And uh, there was another character in the book, the murderer, um, who in fact uh, is a physical outsider. And I was thinking I was being based on the dancer, Vasilov Nijinsky. And one day I was expounding this idea to a friend of mine, Bill Hopkins, who was walking along, and I said, you know, the thing is that the hero of the book has discipline over his intellect, but not over his body or his emotions. The Van Gogh character has discipline over his emotions, but not over his body or his intellect. And the Nijinsky character has discipline over his body, but not over his emotions or his intellect. And all of them really need to combine into one person, so to speak, if we're going to have any kind of real self-control and any chance of really enjoying life and being in control of their life instead of being a kind of slave. And he said, you ought to write that down. And I went back home that Christmas, um, having nothing else to do. I was stuck in London while um, my girlfriend had gone back home to her family. I started writing this thing, The Outsider. <coughs> I just made a note about the various kind of people I wanted to include in the book. Now, at that stage, I had a chapter in the book called The Outsider as Criminal. I don't know whether any of you have ever read The Outsider, but um, the thing um, starts off with a character in a novel by Henri Balbus called L'Enfer, um, Hell. In fact, when I was cycling to the British Museum two or three days after Christmas, since it reopened, I remembered on my way there this novel in which a man <coughs> had discovered a tiny hole in the wall of his hotel room and spent all of his time peering through this hole at the lives of the people who came and went in the next room, which was a kind of, you know, room for hire. And um, actually, this was based upon a real case in which um, some character had been uh, caught doing this, and appearing at the girls undressing in the next room. But he's got the idea for this. But he then um, made the novel about an absolutely typical outsider. This man at the beginning of the novel says that he feels completely alienated and he feels that the reason he's alienated is that he says, I see too deep and too much. And he feels that when other people talk about truth, they don't really mean it. They're willing to accept social facade rather than the truth. And it's at this point that he discovers a hole in the wall. And he was watching these little dramas taking place in the next room, you know, a young married couple spending their first night there and so on and so forth that he really is seeing the truth of human existence instead of this sort of social facade that traps everybody else. But the significance of the novel begins with him saying, um, on the air on top of a tram, a girl is sitting, her dress blows up slightly in the wind. And then he says, it's not a woman I want, it's all women. And I seek them in those around me one by one. And at this point, he picks up a prostitute, goes to bed with her, and says, it was like a sudden falling down, absolute anti-climax. This was not what he wanted at all. So what did he want? This is the interesting question for me. When I was a child, I used to find I was fascinated by water. If we went on a kind of seaside holiday on a bus and went over a river or a lake, I would peer out of the back window with a kind of eagerness, the feeling that there was something thrilling about large sheets of water. And yet, what could you do? I mean, if the bus stopped and you were allowed to get out, you didn't want to drink it. If you tried to swim in it, the damn stuff would be muddy and cold. In a sense, Water is a kind of <coughs> confidence trick. And I have a feeling sex is basically the 
same kind of thing. And this is what serial murder, in a sense, is all about. Anyway, I decided that I'd do a chapter in The Outsider called The Outsider as Criminal, which would be about people like Peter Curtin. And um, my publisher, Golan, said, um, no, really the book's about fictional people, it would be a mistake to drag in real people. And so that chapter never got written, or rather, literally got written, and published as a sort of appendix in my Encyclopedia of Murder. But you must see, that this idea of outsiders and all of the questions they raised, and truth, what would they mean by it, which is one of the quotations from Long Affair, and the whole question of criminality fitted in very closely together. I could see that there was such a close link there, that if I just sort of prized it apart, I felt I'd come across something, across something of deep interest. Um, to begin with, it struck me that the kind of line we draw between criminals and normal people is really non-existent. But not only are we all capable of crime, but also the criminal himself is never entirely criminal. Uh, very often he experiences a curious sense of not being involved in the act at all. The crime is in fact an attempt to get into life involved in a sort of deeper sense. This feeling, in other words, that you are separated from reality by a kind of wall of glass which enables you to see things, and yet, nevertheless, you can't break through it. This feeling, you know, that Karl Marx called alienation, seems to me to be one of the most basic and familiar things with so-called outsiders. And ever since then, I've been trying to solve that problem in various terms. Uh, that suicide attempt taught me one rather interesting thing. I'd always been fascinated by the episode in Graham Greene, in which Greene describes deciding to commit suicide um, with a revolver he found in his brother's cupboard, and going out into Berkhamstead Common and playing Russian roulette, putting one bullet in the chambers, spinning the chambers, pointing it at his head and pulling the trigger. And when there was just a click, he looked down the barrel and found that the bullet had now come into position. And he said he had been so overwhelming feeling absolute sheer delight. He said, it was as if a light had been turned on. And I suddenly saw that the whole world is absolutely wonderful. Now, the interesting thing is, if you turn a light on when you go into a dark room, what you see is what was there before you turned the light on anyway. In other words, that feeling that Graham Greene got, that life is absolutely superb, was obviously a basic kind of truth which came to him when he played Russian roulette. And he said he went on and did this half a dozen more times. And uh, unfortunately, fell blow his brains up because I think he's a terrible bloody writer. With this sort of gloom and pessimism, as much as I know.
that, that is the basic problem. I call this the robot. We've all got a kind of robot inside us that does things for us. So you learn to type painfully and slowly, key by key, then the robot takes it over and does it a lot quicker than you could. Or um, you learn to ride a bicycle, or you learn to swim, or you learn to ski, or you learn to talk French. And in each case, you do it painfully and slowly, and then the robot takes it over and does it far better than you do. The only trouble with this is that the robot not only does the things you want him to do, like typing and talking French, but he does the things you don't want him to do. So you go for a beautiful country walk, which you find absolutely superb, but the third time you do it, the robot is walking instead of you. Um, you listen to a symphony of Mujerita, but you know, the tenth time you listen, it's the robot listening instead of you, particularly when you get tired. I've said I've even caught him making love to my wife. And this is one of the basic problems with the robot. He keeps doing things we should be doing ourselves. And if you get your energies up to a much higher standard, to a much higher level, you see, you could say that all human beings are 50% what you might call robots, and 50% what you might call real you. And so we're roughly 50-50. And as soon as you get tired, down goes the real you, and up goes the robot. And suddenly you're 51% robot, and very often, you know, you can drive home, for example, and not remember the drive, because the robot has taken over and done it for you. Now, on the other hand, when you're really happy and excited, you are 51% real you, and that's what happened with Graham Greene. And the interesting thing about these moments is that you feel that it would be so easy to remain in this state always, 51% real you, till some horrible little um, twit who was the head of music at the BBC, Hans Keller, the most loathsome I've ever come across, and yet he once did an interesting broadcast in which he said that just before the outbreak of the Second World War, when Jews were being killed in Germany in great numbers, um, he prayed, he was, was a German Jew, oh God, just get me out of Germany, and I promise I will never be unhappy for the rest of my life. The bloody little idiot was. I mean, he was that sort of person, small-minded. But the fact remains, you can see, that if you were in that position, you would also see that it would be terribly easy never to be unhappy for the rest of your life. And when you think about this, as I say it to you, you see in a glimpse how easy it would be. But how do you do it? So, this is the problem that so fascinated me. Now, it became obvious to me that one of the basic ways that human beings have of doing this is sex. That sex tends to raise us temporarily to a higher level. And take, for example, of a serial killer, Ted Bundy. Um, Bundy, on the University of Washington campus in Seattle, is walking past the window when he sees a girl taking her clothes off without the curtains drawn. Um, he's instantly in a state of wild sexual excitement. And from then on, begins to play the peeping Tom, he said, um, as a kind of project. He kept on doing it for two or three years. Because he found that he was far more sexually excited than going to bed with an actual girl. Then one day, when he was peering in through some window where he knew the girl never quite drew the curtains before she got undressed, he found the back door open and went in. And we got into the girl's bedroom, she screamed, and he ran away. He thought, oh God, what am I doing? I'll never, never, never do it again. And then, yet found that this peculiar drug of peeping in through windows was so toxic that he kept on doing it. And so, the next time he found the door open, he went into the room and attacked the girl with an iron bar. And even so, was in such a state of fevered excitement that he couldn't commit rape or something before it would have been any possibility. Instead, he attacked her with the iron bar, left her sort of badly brain damaged, and went away. Uh, the next time this happened, he actually kidnapped the girl, um, dragged her into his car, took her away to some distant mountain, and spent the whole night raping her, and then obviously had to kill her. And from then, and, uh, as you know, went on to kill something like 40 women, and probably more. Now, the interesting thing about Bundy is that when he appeared in court, no one could understand this. When he said that he was innocent, everyone totally believed it. He was a good-looking, articulate young man. Um, he'd been a good student. And they couldn't see any reason why he would want to rape girls. He could obviously sort of get girls. And indeed he did. And here you've got one of the strangest and most interesting things. For some reason, uh, this business of the sexual attack um, is a kind of narcotic that is completely addictive. Not only 
view is addictive, but for some weird reason it tends to get worse. That is to say, um, that the person who starts off as bonded is when all of the attack ends by being incredibly sadistic. And the reason for this, I think, um, could be the reason given by um, an American uh, who's in the FBI called um, Hazelwood. Hazelwood commented, um, sex crime is not about sex, it's about power. He said that in the case of one sex criminal, that um, used to put on um, tennis shoes two sizes too large for him before he um, committed the rape, and he would follow a girl for days, noting her exact routine, and then, you know, would sort of break into the flat. And this man said that as he stood by the bed, actually prepared to commit the rape, that was the least interesting part of it. He could, at that point, have easily turned up and gone away. So Hazelwood said, well, why didn't you? They said, well, if you'll forgive me saying so, Mr. Hazelwood, at that point, it would have been a crime not to do it. Having put so much trouble into it. But you can see that what actually um, drove him was this feeling, like Bundy, of having a project and of doing something with deep interest. It's the business of focusing totally and intensely upon something which suddenly gives you a strange sense of purpose and drive. It's as if you canalize your energies. And when we canalize our energies, we feel happy. We all want to find something that deeply interests us. E. Lawrence once said, happiness is absorption. And we all recognize just what he meant. That once you focus and canalize your energies totally, you have this peculiar feeling of certainty and drive. Now, the interesting thing is that you can do that, quite obviously, without needing some external source. I mean, for example, in masturbation which is focusing an imaginative object, um, let's say in the case of a male, an imaginative female, and carrying it through to the point of orgasm. Now, this is very interesting. If you become think of it, if you're very hungry, you can sit down and imagine a large meal as you like, and it still doesn't satisfy you, or even begin to satisfy you. If you're very imagining drinking doesn't satisfy you. If you sort of are utterly bored and badly want to travel, no matter how much you sit down and think about traveling, it doesn't satisfy you. Imagine trapping your hand in a door. You can imagine going over, and yet, you know, it's not really the proper thing. You don't really feel pain. <coughs> so sex is the only department, in fact, in which we can use the imagination to go through a physical process which will result in its normal end product, an orgasm. There is a sense in which masturbation is the highest faculty that human beings have yet developed. For example, animals can't masturbate in the ordinary sense. I want to ask Abraham Maslow, an American professor who studied monkeys in Bronx Zoo for years, um, had he ever seen a monkey masturbating without the presence of another monkey, a female? And he said, no. In other words, we human beings possess this peculiar faculty of imagination, which is somehow the key to our humanity. And you can also see that it would be the key to what you would do on the narrow ledge forever and ever. If on the narrow ledge you can envisage clearly enough being on the point of death, then instantly that enormous surge of vitality which Graham Greene experienced when he pulled the trigger, you could induce at any given moment. Uh, I call this the flow experience. You experience it when you're very hungry and you eat a meal. You experience it if you're trying to go to the laboratory and you relax. Uh, the flow experience is just a feeling of, thank heavens for that. And the flow experience has the effect of changing us little by little. When we're young, the world is full of obstacles and difficulties and things we're not allowed to do, all prohibitions and so on. And little by little, growing up means overcoming prohibitions. You remember how as a kid you wished, you know, that you could stay up till all hours like your parents and go where you liked. It's all overcoming prohibitions one by one. And this growing process means that what we want to do is to experience 
except just the ordinary sort of criminality with the purpose of making a living. But Baudelaire once said, everything in the world exudes crime. It's a completely romantic idea, but what he meant by it was that this notion of crime as something capable of arousing us to a peculiar obsessiveness is a terrific importance. It produces the same kind of intensity, you know, as sort of great poetry or great music or whatever else. Dostoevsky proposed to write a novel called The Life of a Great Sinner about a man who sins his way to salvation. <laughs> the idea being that if you sin enough, you would keep experiencing flow experiences and gradually you would grow up so much that you would become finally a thoroughly, totally mature human being who would be able to put crime behind it. That's the theory behind it. There's a, did you know that Victorian book called My Secret Life? Has anyone ever read it? An interesting book by a Victorian who decided to devote his whole life to sex. Some sort of Victorian gentleman. It's anonymous. It's, um, the thing is about 3,000 pages long in two huge volumes. And he just describes um, sex from the age of about um, seven, when he sort of first raised the bedclothes with his little sister was asleep, and when he and a friend stood in the basement, this area of um, a shop, peering up through the grating of women's of women skirts as they went past. And then an enormous long succession of sort of, you know, prostitutes and women he's had an affair with. And he carried on doing this all his life. As far as I can see, I mean, this, this book covers about 30 or 40 years. Now, what strikes me as so interesting about this is the fact that not only must you have a tremendous amount of persistence to continue doing this for 40 years, but also you must have a tremendous amount of stupidity. I mean, didn't he ever notice that it's the same thing he was doing over and over again? You see, it strikes me that, and this is really the basis of what I'm talking about at the moment, sex is based fundamentally upon a kind of illusion. And it seems to me that nature, or God, or the life force, or whatever, has screwed up completely in making the sexual attractions so enormously important to human beings. The animals simply respond to the smell of the bitch on heat. <coughs> human beings have got into the habit not only of being able to have sex all the year round, which means that you know, they're not periodic, but it also means that they can conjure up sexual excitement whenever they like. And this, it seems to me, is the fundamental problem. Take a summer like Monday, getting again and again and again. You see, about six months ago, a friend sent me an autobiography by an American called Danny Rollins, who was the Gainesville killer. I don't know if you remember, in about, um, 1987, there were five students killed on the Gainesville campus in Florida in the course of about three days. And uh, <coughs> after students left the campus, and he wasn't caught for a long time, and then was finally caught, turned out to be attacked to Danny Rollins. And um, did an autobiography explaining exactly um, how he came to be this type of killer. The interesting thing is that what you gather reading your biography is that he's an extremely decent kind of person. The fact that he really cares about people comes over. A few years ago I got into correspondence with Ian Brady and the one thing that comes over from Brady I heard that he was an extremely intelligent person. He wrote to me out of the blue. And, uh, and it struck me, you know, if he's an extremely intelligent person, surely he would respond, so to speak, to ideas. As indeed he does. I mean, he's read Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and all the rest of it. And yet, when I'd been corresponding with Brady for a few months, I realized that the problem with Brady is that he's a total obsessive and that his obsession is anti-authoritarianism. For example, you don't feel that that song, The Reservoir of Dogs, is one of the greatest songs ever made. I don't know whether you've ever seen it, it's kind of anti-police film and so on. Um, in a letter to me the other day, Brady said, Why are you so 
a completely honest criminal because you're in society which is so rotten um, that to lash back in the way shows that in fact you have some kind of um, free will and originality. I keep pointing out to him that two blacks don't make a white. And that, you know, if he was a burglar and somebody mugged him on his way home with his flag, he'd feel extremely resentful and feel like calling the police. That basically we all have this feeling that there is a perfectly clear dividing line between crime and living an ordinary life. And we feel that living an ordinary life involves being involved with other people. And in a sense, um, you know, being decent. If somebody walks up to you in the street and asks you the time, you feel this is a perfectly reasonable request because, you know, there's a sense in which we're all together. We're all in this together. And in the same way, you know, normally if you can help somebody, you probably do. Because once again, you feel, you know, we're all in this together and helping somebody makes you feel good. Now, <clears throat> in Brady's case, it's quite obvious that he tries to keep this morality, so to speak, for himself and the people he likes. And the rest of society, as far as he's concerned, are sort of beyond a certain pale. At which point they're all aliens who deserve what they get. But how can you put children on that side of the pale? Brady told me that he said he'd done absolutely everything. And he said this in a rather proud sort of way. And I said, but is it true, the thing that he said to a journalist called Fred Harrison, that at a certain point you felt completely empty? And he acknowledged, yes, this was true. But by the time he killed, and I think it was more than five children, he experienced a curious sense of meaninglessness, a sense that life had become pointless. And it was at this point, of course, that he was talking. I even suspect inside me that he wanted to be caught. Do you remember that Lord Byron said that um, he'd been seduced by a servant girl when he was um, nine years old? And that from then on, sex never meant much to him because he's had it too early. Can you begin to see why this would be so? Why? If you'd had too much too early, supposing you'd been born the son of a multimillionaire, or daughter and <coughs> anything you wanted, it would lead to a peculiar sense of purposefulness. When I was at technical school, we used to have a weaving class where you wove scarves on things called flatbed machines, which were two beds of needles opposite one another like that. And you pulled a thing called a camshaft across and back, and all of the little needles went up one by one and knitted the scarf. Now what you had to do was put a kind of heavy weight through the first row of stitches, so they pulled down it. And then you'd go on knitting away quite happily, and you know, with a little luck, you got yourself a scarf. If, on the other hand, you let the weight touch the floor, taking the weight off the needles, the wool climbed up around the needles and made a horrible mess. Human beings need a weight on the needle. Take the weight off the needles and we go into the same state as Byron or Ian Brady. In other words, all experiences require that you put as much into the experience as the experience puts into you. And if you want to start having experiences only putting, so to speak, half the effort into it. And the result is some peculiar screw-up. Even if you eat a meal casually, without really thinking about it, you can quite easily get indigestion. On the other hand, think what happens when you are feeling sick, and then suddenly something interests you. And instantly your sickness goes away. The moment your mind goes into gear, so to speak, like at one of those central heating boilers starting up. Quite suddenly, you feel absolutely splendid. You experience the freedom feeling. Soon after the upside came out, I got a letter from an American professor of psychology called Maslow, who told me that he'd stopped studying sick people 
because they talked about nothing but their sickness. He said that instead, he decided to study healthy people, it's fine. Nobody has ever studied healthy people before. So he asked around among his friends, who's the healthiest person you know? And they gave him a list of people. He studied these people and discovered something very interesting. They're all healthy people, had a great frequency, what he called peak experiences, experiences of sudden throttling, overwhelming happiness. For example, a young mother was sitting watching her husband and children eating breakfast when a beam of sunlight came in through the window and she thought, my God, I'm so lucky, and went into the peak experience. A Marine who had been in the South Pacific for several years without seeing a woman went back to base and saw a nurse and suddenly had a peak experience because he said he realized that women are different from men. <laughs> you would say, well, of course they're different, we all know that. But that's not true, you don't. Jessica once said, we say thank you when someone passes with the soul, but we don't mean it. We say the earth is round, but we don't mean it. But an astronaut in space can say the earth is round and mean it. It's a lot of ability to say something and mean it that makes all the difference. And so when she was lucky before she had the peak experience, but suddenly the beam of sunlight came in through the window and reminded her, and quite suddenly she went into the peak experience. She suddenly saw she was lucky. It's like saying thank you for the soul to mean it. You can see there's something odd about this, isn't there? It's like looking in a mirror and seeing her own face. That's what she did in a sentence. Now, Maslow discovered that nearly all of his students had these peak experiences and could talk in class about them. One of them, for example, was a young jazz drummer or a young boy who was working his way through college by working as a jazz drummer in the evening. And he said he had been a peak experience once when he was um, drumming away at about 2 o'clock in the morning and suddenly he said he was drumming perfectly. He couldn't do a thing wrong. And he went into the peak experience. William James says that a footballer can play the game brilliantly and yet one day suddenly the game stops playing him and then he plays perfectly. So we all know what this means. Now can you see energy to a higher level and suddenly it's the real you doing it instead of the robot. Or rather the robot is so totally within your control that you can do something absolutely perfectly. Now, unfortunately, one of the intensest experiences that most human beings have is the sexual experience. And this certainly applies very much to young males. I mean, it is my own experience as a teenager that I just thought about sex something like 99.9% of the time. Every girl who walked past in the street was both infinitely interesting. And yet, you soon realize if there's any possibility of actually satisfying this urge, as like, let's say, a pop star has the opportunity to, with lots and lots of women, that you feel exactly like Ian Brady. A peculiar sense of mere boring repetition. This is obviously because you're not putting enough into it, and therefore the robot takes over and does it instead of you. If somebody can invent some kind of electrical device with a switch in your chest that you flick up and turn off the robot, this would save the human race all its problems. War would disappear, crime would disappear. Because nearly all these things are due to this device, the flow experience, for the intensity experience, and the feeling that you've got to do something interesting, something that focuses and concentrates your whole attention. You see, I pointed out to Brady that the problem with using sex as a means of achieving the peak experience, and, you know, hopefully achieving some kind of mystical absolute that the author of my secret life did, is the sexual elevator doesn't go all the way to the roof. It stops halfway. And if you want to get to the roof, you have to get up and walk the rest of the way. In fact, saints and ascetics know that you have to walk the whole way from the ground floor. This is the reason they do apparently preposterous things like lying on beds of nails and flogging themselves and so on. They're simply trying to wake up the mind, recognizing that fundamentally it's fast asleep. A female psychiatrist I knew, a very unconventional one, told me that whenever she was left alone in somebody's house, 
she needed the experience of Palgrosh to go through the draws. And you can see why. She's sitting in the house and she thinks, you know, what have I got to do? What is there to do? Let's do something naughty. Let's go and look through their drawers. This urge to do something naughty, to get rid of boredom, is one of the most fundamental human urges. Now, unfortunately, there are potentially human beings who need to live purposefully. Robert Gardner told me an interesting story about the Korean War. Apparently, there were no escapes of American soldiers from the Chinese. And when they tried to find out why this was, they discovered that the Chinese watched the soldiers carefully for a while, and then they separated out from them all of those who appeared to have any kind of drive or enterprise, and they put those into a separate compound under heavy guard. And they found that they could leave the rest of the soldiers with no guard at all, and they wouldn't try to escape. Once they'd weeded out that 5%, that 1 in 20, what you might call the king rats, the rest of them quite suddenly became a kind of soggy mass of dough. You were obviously all members of the 5%, so you wouldn't be here talking about Jack the Ripper. But think what happens when a person who is a member of the 5% has no chance to express his rival dominance. 5% is a hell of a lot of people. I mean, there be millions and millions and millions of people. They don't all have a chance to, you know, be pop stars or whatever, to express themselves. As often as not, they're living as Thoreau says, lives of quiet desperation. And so, you get outsiders. And so also, you get criminals who make a habit of crime because it becomes, as I say, a kind of drug. In other words, the first thing you can say about most serial killers <coughs> is that they belong to the dominant 5%. And unfortunately, they've taken this extremely insidious route, the sexual route. Yeah, I must confess, I'm absolutely delighted that by the time my first book, The Outsider, came out, I was already settled with my present wife. Because it's a yeah. tremendous temptation to go to the third party, you know, meet pretty girls and sort of get into this habit of going to bed. Um, my friend Bill Hopkins, who had the same experience, his first book was a great success, was having seven affairs at the same time. And what's more, for him, the interesting thing was <coughs> girls born here one another, he had to keep each one a secret. And you see, I'm trying to be preposterous about this, this kind of masochism. And yet I must confess, it's the kind of thing that you get terribly easily drawn into, because sex does give us this sense that, you know, is going to provide us with a glimpse of reality, a glimpse of purpose, a glimpse of something higher than the everyday routine. In fact, it's going to snap you out of the robot. In fact, it does nothing of the sort. And here, as I say, there is this interesting, rather terrifying thing. <coughs> uh, next weekend, I've got a man coming to see me called Wilton Earl, America. Um, he is the author of a book called Final Truth. Has anyone read it? It's the most sickening book ever written. It's almost unreadable. And I know one who succeeded in reading it to the end. Um, it's the story about the worst serial killer of this century, a man called um, Pee Wee Gaskin. Yeah. Yeah. Gaskin <coughs> was born into a sort of incredibly poor family. You get this again and again. This childhood abuse thing. Incidentally, one of the odd things is that so far, all serial killers, as far as I know, have been working class. I'm not saying that a middle class or an upper class serial killer couldn't exist. But you know, for the most part, they've been working class simply because this creates that kind of intense frustration which can burst out of serial murder. And Gaskins, um, living a sort of life in South Carolina, as you know, the, the son of a, a poor laborer, quickly. Um, with two friends of his, got involved in minor burglary and so on. But one day, they all decided, they'd been to bed with prostitutes by the time they were 15 or 16, they decided what they wanted to do was to go to bed with somebody who wasn't a prostitute. And one of the three said, well, what about my sister? And so they invited her to the cinema with them, and didn't take her to the cinema, but took her away to an empty house, and spent the afternoon raping her. And Gatsby, 
been said. It was so good we just could not stop. Afterwards, the, when the parents found out, they sort of got the worst beating of their lives. But I'm convinced that this was the beginning of turning Gaskins into a serial killer. It was so good that we couldn't stop. Now, Gaskins went on as a burglar and all this kind of thing. Um, spent several periods in prison for minor sexual assaults. Then one day, um, when he'd been in prison for um, attempting to rape a girl, suddenly thought, this is stupid. If I murder the girls, they can't call the police. And he said it was a revelation, you know, like St. Paul on the road to Damascus. And that from then on, this is what he began to do. The interesting thing is that the first time he put this thing into practice, he didn't just rape the girl, he sort of went into real end after sadism. I won't go into all this stuff, you can read it yourself and find all truth if you want to. Incidentally, Wilf Noel, who, as I said, is coming to see me next weekend, is suffering from cancer, and he's pretty convinced that he was working with Gaskins on his book that gave him cancer. He said the feeling of being there with somebody who described, committed something like 120 murders, all sadistic. In one case, he took three days to kill a girl. And he said that working with Gaskins was a horrific experience. And this chap didn't look and doesn't sound like a serial killer. I've got to say, when he was executed in 1990, you know, had some sort of deep southern accent, and he'd pick up some girl and say, yeah, a little girl like you shouldn't be on your own out here on the beach, and so on, and they completely trust him. What interests me is why did he get more and more and more sadistic? There's some weird chemical thing about sex, which means that it goes on, given its own head, uh, to develop into a peculiar kind of sickening intensity, a nauseating intensity. Now, you can see this is obviously one of the basic problems of modern civilization, because sex crime did not exist until Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper was the first sex criminal. I mean, you may say that's silly. What about Nero? What about um, Caligula? What about Ivan the Terrible? But, you know, we're talking about sort of upper-class people who were able to do exactly what they wanted. If you're talking about ordinary lower-class people, then this did not happen until the second half, in fact, the last quarter of the 19th century. Look at the Newgate Calendar, which, as you know, was published about 1777. Out of something like sort of three or four hundred cases in this huge fat book, there are only three that could be construed as sex crime, and they're not sex crime in our modern sense sort of vicar who, you know, seduced the servant girl and that kind of thing. Of actually committing murder for sex, it would not have occurred to them, it certainly wouldn't have occurred to us, a Victorian for whom sex was so cheap that you could go and get a virgin for five shillings. Maslow came up with an extremely interesting theory, um, which he called the hierarchy of needs. <coughs> what he said briefly was this, if um, you're starving, then you think the only thing you would want is one good meal a day, and if you could just have that, you'd be ecstatically happy. But in point of fact, if you reach the point of being fairly well fed, your next level emerges, um, which is the need for a roof over your head, for security. So every tramp dreams of a country cottage with roses around the door. And if you get that level to the next level emerges, which is the sexual level. And I don't just mean for sex. I mean um, the need, actually, for, you know, loving, for having another person in this country, being loved. Uh, and if that level is satisfied, then the next level emerges, which is the level of self-esteem. The need to sort of be respected. And like, you know, people say, morning, Mr. Smith, this is the level at which people join Rotary Clubs and all that kind of thing. Women give coffee mornings and so Tupperware. And um, <laughs> then, if you satisfy this level, Maslow says, there's a fifth level, which doesn't invariably emerge, but which often doesn't. This is a purely creative level. He called it self-actualization. And what this means, basically, is that people want to do something to do it well. For example, a woman who brought up kids so well that when um, her own family grew up, she kept adopting kids just for the sheer pleasure of bringing them up. Um, obviously, an artist would be an example of this, but even a sailor putting ships in bottles is an example of self-actualization. Now, self-actualization does not emerge in all cases, but the rest of the four levels we all go through to some extent. Now, think about it. The rather interesting thing is that 
the levels of crime in the past two centuries, the followed Maslow's four levels. <coughs> the time the Newgate calendar came out, most people were living at such a level of poverty and misery that nearly all crime was purely for food. And you've got people like Burke and Hare in about 
speak the same way around. It was never the woman more dominant than the male. So what you appear to have here is some kind of you know, biological basis for this thing. High dominant males would happily go to bed with any female, whether she was high dominant, medium dominant, or low dominant. But they were only interested personally in high dominant women. They could only have a personal relationship with somebody within their own dominance group. Now, think what happens in the case of the Maud Murphy. Brady is extremely high dominance. He even tries to pull in me. Myra is definitely very much middle dominant. She wrote in her diary when she first met Ian, Oh, Ian is wonderful. I would love to marry Ian and live with him happily ever after a son. If you read Emily Williams' book on it, beyond belief. Um, what happened is that finally, after not paying any attention to her for a full year, Brady finally invites her out to the New Year's Eve party or something, takes her back and takes her virginity on this first evening. Obviously, what he's getting is the terrific kick of a high-dominant male with a medium-dominant female completely under his thumb. Myra is a sort of um, extremely religious type, brought up a Catholic, loves children, loves animals, and so Brady converts her to the Marquis de Sade and to atheism, and so on. She's rather prim type, so he converts her to having um, pornographic pictures taken of herself, and so on. Each time he gets a sort of kick out of imposing his will. So you can see that the modern murder is basically a first of all about dominance between two people. Leopold and Lewis were the same kind of thing. Dominance between two people and the higher dominance person actually getting enormous pleasure out of imposing his dominance on the other person. And they're also about this business of, so to speak, the flow experience. The illusion that you will reach some kind of ultimate by being allowed to do absolutely what you like sexually. This tends to be, you know, one of the ideas that has been around since the 60s, as you know. Remember all the wife swapping craze in the 60s, repeating that Wilhelm Reich was the person who first preached this. You know, why don't human beings get rid of their shame about sex and recognize that it's good and everybody should have as much as they like and all the rest of it? They tried this in San Francisco, for example, the an experiment in the 1960s. And the result was sort of absolute boredom. And the kind of thing that uh, emerged at the end of the 60s, like the Charles Manson murder, because it was always mixed up with drugs. A friend of mine said that he was at one of these wild parties involving some incredibly complicated sexual activity with three women at the same time. When he said quite suddenly, it all struck him so funny that he burst into roars of laughter that he disgusted everybody else in the room. You can see why. You see, I'm going to shut up now, but what I'm trying to say, I must make my central point here. We're talking about the fact that when you have experience, you put as much of yourself into the experience as the experience puts into you. When you're hungry and you're eating a good dinner, you put a terrific amount of concentration into the experience. When you're lying in bed on a winter morning and you've got to get up in five minutes, the bed has never seemed so warm and delicious because you're putting so much into actually lying there in the bed. Can you see what I'm saying? That the answer lies inside there, behind your forehead, in your own mind. The philosopher Edmund Husserl said that all perception is intentional. It's like firing an arrow at an object. If you look at your watch without firing an arrow at it, you don't see the time. You have to look at it again in five minutes. Everything we do is intentional. We don't recognize it. You recognize it where eating is concerned. You recognize it where sex is concerned. Because in both these activities, you have to put something into it yourself. But where perception is concerned, you think you open your eyes, and things just walk in and imprint themselves on your brain. You know this is not true. If you're in, let's say, an art gallery, then you've got to put a certain amount of drive into looking at the pictures. Otherwise, you see nothing. If you walked around the, the art gallery with a bad hangover, you wouldn't really see the pictures. And what's more, it would be exactly like going through a gallery with the lights turned right down so that you couldn't see the pictures. In some funny way, your gaze is like two headlights. Now, what I've been doing all my life is trying to develop techniques in which we can actually use this business of turning the gaze into headlights, learning the trick of total focus. And I'm convinced that the human race is on the point of an evolutionary leap to a higher stage. 
that we've now reached this stage where we are about to develop this peculiar power. That you can see, when I said I think masturbation is one of the highest faculties we've developed, it sounds a joke, and yet it is the only faculty in which we can exercise intentionality on its own without an object. If we could learn to do this, for example, in the case of crisis, if you can induce the feeling that Graham Greene induced by pulling the trigger, you can see that whenever you want it, you can have a peak experience. And it merely depends upon the intensity and focus of your intentionality. Anyway, I'm sorry to end on such an abstract note, but I've got to shut up now. <laughs>